to the book of Esther. So if you go to Psalms and then go back a little bit, you'll find it there. And Esther is one of those books in the Bible that doesn't mention God. So you might wonder, well, why is it there? Well, it's there, I think, for a number of different reasons. One of them being, quite simply, it's all about God's people. And so one of the realities that happens is there are connections that we don't make in our culture that were clearly made in cultures in times past. And the idea in cultures in times past is that the success of someone was linked to their God. The preservation of a nation was linked to its God. Now you might say maybe we should make that connection in our world today, and that's a whole nother discussion. But I want us to understand that this is part of the Bible because it is about God's people and what happened to them. It was the events that occurred in this book probably happened around 480 B.C. So just to give you a little bit of context, so it was in the, what do you say, the early 500s, um, or the late 500s, except time went backwards, however you want to negotiate that, that, the, it, that Judah and the people of Jerusalem were taken captive into Babylon. And it was about 70 years later, or some 40 or so years before the book of Esther, that they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But some chose to stay in Babylon. And this is a story about those that chose to stay in Babylon. Those that chose to stay in Babylon would have been kind of a small minority. Just a small group of people within a much bigger and broader culture. They would have been so small, in fact, that as we read through the story, we'll find out the king didn't really even know who they were, the Jews. It was not a big deal or it didn't really matter to him. But they were God's people and they mattered to God. Esther chapter 1 is kind of the backstory. You know, for every story you have to set it up. This is the story of Queen Esther being set up. Let's read it. Perhaps one of the stories and chapters of the Bible that is most loaded with irony. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, And when these days were completed, the king gave gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement 
of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring King Vashti before the king with all with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Mehuman, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written from among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, would you give wisdom and grace to us to understand your word and to apply it to our own lives and to, um, to give us wisdom for service in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past week I was listening to the radio and they were interviewing a candidate for governor, not of our state, but of another state. And the party and the person are irrelevant for our purposes. But this person being interviewed said, the people going out to vote need to understand how much power a governor has. They need to make sure that that power isn't given 
to my opponents. But they need to understand that if I have power, I will use my power for their good, whereas that villain of an opponent of mine, (laughs) I mean, who quite honestly is the worst person on the planet, and I, of course, am the best. Not their exact words, of course. I exaggerate. But that villain will use the power to damage you and to take away from you. But if I'm given power, I will use it for good. So therefore, vote for me. Now, some version of this goes across campaign commercials and has been running in the background for years. One politician stands up and says, Give me the power. Why? Because I am your Messiah, and I will save you. And who do you need to be saved from? My opponent. And of course, we as Americans who hope everlastingly, we buy one person's version of the truth, and we elect them. And they go, and they go to start using their power, making decrees and doing whatever they can, as much as they can, with their power. And it turns out that they're not quite as powerful as we thought. All of those promises that they would fix everything turned out to be a little bit hollow. But of course, they had to oversell to get you to vote for them. And then, I mean, this is documented over the last 30 years of political history, Then what do we do two years later? We throw the bums out. Why? (laughs) Because we wanted them to use their power to fix everything, and they used their power to try to fix everything, and they didn't fix everything. But now there's a new guy who is up there saying, I've got the power, and I can fix it for you. And this cycle just goes on and on and on, And there isn't an understanding that when you put someone who is hopelessly unqualified to do a job into the position, they are going to fail. Let me put it this way. Today, right now, you are about to learn how to become world-famous orchestra conductors. So the basic thing is with your right hand, it's down, left, right, up. That's how you do 4-4 four, four time, more or less. You know, and if you're a professional, you know, you have a little bit of style to it, not just, you know, but, right? And then when you come to the end of a measure, in order to mark measures, you know, you can use both hands. So one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. See? It's It's easy. And then you just need to have a score that has, you know, the 30 different instruments. And then you just need to point to each one when they're supposed to come in. So just, that's it. So, now I want all of you to go out with this amazing knowledge of how to be a professional orchestra conductor and get jobs with all of the major symphonies in the United States. Like, isn't that amazing? So how many of you think that that would work? You don't know enough. You're, you're hopelessly limited by a lack of knowledge. But that's sort of the point that Esther begins with. Here we are, as finite people. We don't know the future. We don't know that 
when one thing happens, what will follow after that? And if we prayed around saying, well, I've got the wisdom, I've got the knowledge, and maybe even more than that, what we're saying is, I'll have control. If you vote for me on Tuesday, I'll have control. And I'll control all the bad people. And I'll control all the good things. It's about control. And in our text, we have a king. We have a king who, he's in control. Or he would like to think that he is. And in his kingdom, there's a rule that whatever this king says, that rule stands because the king is God. And I'd like to think that somehow we've gotten smarter as the years have gone by, but we still think this way. Our kings are gods that are to deliver goods. And every now and again, maybe I'll be God. And I'll deliver goods for myself. I'll control other people. I'll get what I want. But this doesn't work. It doesn't work for the king then. And it doesn't work now either. Because like a, like a person who has little knowledge of directing an orchestra, the most wise and brilliant and powerful kings of this earth are just amateurs. God is the one that holds everything in his hand. So let's see the, the appearance of human power. That's my first thought. God rules, we don't. Look at the appearance of power. Well, where does our text begin? Ahasuerus. He is the king over 127 provinces. Like, the appearance of power here is quite impressive. There's a show. And he puts it on. He calls all of his officials, all of the leaders, all of the rulers, and he says, let's have a party for six months. I don't know how many of you have been to a six-month-long party. I haven't been invited. And if you're having them at your house, please get me on the list. But what's the point? The point is obvious. The king is showing everyone how amazing he is. How amazing his kingdom. Some think that he was bringing everybody in for this huge party to kind of get everyone pumped up to go to war. Because shortly after these events, he goes to war against Greece and crashes and burns. But that's another story. Everybody sees. And then he says, we got to include everybody too. After six months of partying by all the king's officials, everybody in town, come on in and talk about a show. I mean, I don't know how many of you have gold furniture. I mean, personally, I don't know that I'd want to sit on it. Seems kind of hard. I'd rather have, you know, foam. But whatever the case, I mean, you get this sense the, the pavement in the palace, the court, 
I mean, it's made out of all these precious stones and you're walking on them, sitting on a gold couch with linen and all sorts of beautiful tapestries around you. You'd get the sense of, wow, like this king is somebody special. And the king, he gets that sense too. I'm somebody pretty special. And you might think, well, does that happen in our world today? What sort of kings prayed their power around with military displays? You can turn on the news. You can look at history. This is a normal pattern that still happens today. Everyone will see my power and then they will obey. And if they don't, they will be displayed as the ant that they are. Done. So we have this display of power, and then we have the king's decrees. Verse 8. Let it be known that everybody should have as much to drink as they want. There are no limits in my kingdom. Just, just so everyone knows. You can do whatever you want, and you have to do whatever you want, because I've said you have to do whatever you want, and you should keep doing whatever you want until I say you can't do whatever you want, which would be never, because I'm just such a great guy. But there's almost a comedy that's being developed here, right? I mean, seriously, do you have to tell people when there's an open bar, drink however much you want, as long as you want? All you have to just say is there's an open bar, enjoy it. But no, I mean, down to the minutia of people's lives, this king is making his decrees. And of course, when you're making decrees that everyone likes, then you're the hero. And isn't that the idea? When you've got power, it's always nice to have adoring fans that are running around that are saying, oh, look at them. Aren't they grand? Isn't this great? Have you ever been to a party this good? And what's the purpose? Well, to to pull everybody together to get to go to war. But the purpose is pleasure. Like, this is straight-up hedonism. And you can tell that the hedonism is reaching a fever pitch when we get to verse 10. And the king's like... I mean, to be blunt, the king says, I'd like some pornography. And nobody's prettier than the queen. And everybody's drunk. And when people drink more and more, their judgment becomes more and more compromised. We know in our world how that works. So he calls his guys in and he's like... I want my queen to be prated in front of everyone. The queen is simply an object for the king's pleasure. Doesn't seem to care much about her. And so he says, get the queen in here. So everything's going great for this king. He's got the power. He's got the authority. Pleasure, anything he wants, anytime he wants it. Things are going well. 
until he runs into the limit of his power. He runs into the place where there is a lack of power. And I want you to just sit there a minute and think in our world, when do people become angry? When do people just lose their mind? It's when they come up against the limits of their power. What is there in our culture that... It's even a phenomena. It's called cancel culture. What is it? I will cancel anyone that I do not have control over. I will smash them. As long as I am in control and I have what I want, I am good. But if somebody crosses me, my rage will be unmatched. And I will flatten them. And I will show them that I'm the one in charge. And that they should never have the audacity to cross me. Such are the dictators of our world. Such are, as our culture would say, the narcissists and the sociopaths. The people who think nothing of others, but only of themselves. And it's fine and good when everything is good. But when they get crossed, look out for their wrath. Because it is coming. There is no grace. There is no godliness. There is only wrath. And that is the king. Verse 12. His lack of power is exposed when the queen says, no way. Not doing that. I won't come. So there's this massive crisis that comes to the king's house. I'm not in charge. I wish I was. I thought I was. I want to be. And so he calls in his advisors. He's like, what's the rules here, guys? Like, we've got to have some rule that applies to this. Isn't there a decree? I mean, I surely the kings before me have made decrees, or is there some history in the last four years of my reign that I've made decrees? Like, what do we do when somebody doesn't obey the king? It's almost like he's sitting there going, this has never happened before. And maybe it hasn't. At least not directly to his face. His lack of power. And it's put really simply here. If you can't control the smallest and the least, then what does that say about your control about the greatest things? And here's just one person. Like, King, if you can't control this one person, one request, what does that say about you? And this is why the king's so mad. It says that he really isn't in control. And if you wonder why there seems to be so much rage and anger that exists in our world and our political system, it is because we are a people that grasp after control, desperately wanting to dictate what will happen in the future and what will happen now. And if there is no God, 
If there is no God that reigns and rules and controls and has the future in his hand, then we are right to be desperate. Then we are right to stand and to say, in this moment in time, as has been said by politicians of both political parties, this election now matters more than anything else because it will determine the future. Really? Really? Like, seriously? Like one moment, one day in 2022, God is wringing His hands up in heaven saying, oh no, if they don't vote for what they're supposed to vote for, the entire world is going to crash and burn. Oh! Or do you think maybe that, maybe that God knows? That is not a call to passivity. That is not a call that in fact is a call to action. God knows. So be faithful. God knows. Be faithful. Don't wring your hands if it doesn't go your way. But say, God knew. I was faithful. And God's going to do what God is going to do. He reigns and He rules and I don't have to. And so I can, I can sleep well whether my team wins or my team loses. Because I know that there is a God that holds ridiculous fools like King Ahasuerus. And sometimes that holds ridiculous fools like you and me. And He overrides us when necessary. And blesses our efforts when He desires. But we, we do not have control. This is the wrench in the story. Well, what does the king do about that? What is the response to a lack of power? Well, verses 13 through 15. The king is obviously disoriented. He calls his advisors. And they play a, what is a, a common game in a type of counseling called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's called the worst case scenario game. So, I mean, and you just appreciate the fantastic way that they're playing connect the dots, right? All right, so Queen Vashti diso- disobeyed. Word of that is going to spread and every woman in the kingdom is going to rebel against her husband. I mean, it will be absolutely universal. There will not be a woman anywhere that still listens to her husband. Like, this will be battle of the sexes on steroids. The kingdom is going to fall because Vashti won't come. Like, everything is awful everywhere all the time and will be forever because of this. And so when you're playing that game, you usually make really wise decisions. And so the king, his advisors say, listen, you need to double down. Now is not the time to admit that your power has limits. Now is the time to double down. And so what you need to do is you need to banish the queen. I mean, you know, you've got to come down hard on this. Banish the queen. And once she's banished... Send out a decree that every man is to be in charge in his own house. And all the men will get the orders and they'll be like, well, 
guess I have to be in charge. And all the women will read the orders and be like, I guess he gets to be in charge. And everything will be grand again. Hmm. And I mean, all of his officials are like, brilliant. Pure brilliance, O king. Like, we've come up with this great plan and it's sure to work. There will be no more problems in your kingdom. Whew, that was close. But what does he do? He misunderstands the problem. He misunderstands what power is for. Is power to be used for yourself? Is power to be used to punish others? Is power for you? And is power given to you for you? And the mistake that is made in our world is that we think power's for us. And the mistake that is exposed in this story is that power is best used for service. And the king has no desire to serve or to forgive. And of course, he's probably still drunk, which doesn't help his judgment. But what does it mean when somebody who has power realizes that they've used it wrong? In this moment in time, the king, if he hadn't been so compromised by his sense of, I'm in charge, should have thought to himself, actually, I overstepped. What I asked the queen to do was not appropriate. It was demeaning. The queen knew it. I should have known it too. Bring me some coffee. Let me sober up. Let me pull this back in. Let me think about how to use my power in a way that's constructive. And sometimes in our lives, each of us has power. We have authority in different realms. You certainly have power if you are old enough to vote. You have power that's given to you. But when you go to vote on Tuesday, that power is not for you to use for your benefit or your purposes. If you're in a family, there are power, there's power that you have in that context. Power to speak life or to bring death. Power to bless or power to destroy. If you have siblings, you know about this. You have power to bring life or power to take it away. In your workplace, even if you're at the bottom of the totem pole, you realize, I have power here to encourage or to do damage. 
In every place there is power. And the question is, how is that power used? With an acknowledgement that there is somebody who I report to regard to how I use it, in regards to how I use it? Or it's just me. It's all about me. And it's interesting if you're a student of history, how many kingdoms last forever? How many rulers use their power well all the time? Even in the Old Testament, if you read through all of the different kings, even the ones that are given the title did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, many of them still had great failures in the way that they used the power that God had given them. And the only person on record that I know of that used their power appropriately is recorded in the Gospels. And how did Jesus use power? Did he use it to stand and to make decrees? Or did he use it in a way where he set it aside? Did he use it for the good of people rather than their destruction? He certainly spoke the truth. And sometimes that truth was really hard to hear. But he came as a servant. And the best kings and the best rulers in our world are ones that realize that their authority is given to them by God. And that ultimately, while they may report to voters on how they do, they will report to someone far more important than voters. And this is why people who are godly that are in authority in earthly places will often do things that a majority of people do not like. This is why sometimes pastors and elders and people in authority and parents, they don't necessarily take a poll of their kids. (laughs) They don't necessarily take a public opinion poll to determine what they should do. Because they realize that there is somebody who holds all of it. And I will report to them. And if I lose my earthly power in submission to God's authority, then I am willing to lose it all. And in a world that holds on to power, Christians are unique in saying, I'm willing to lose it all. I'm willing to lose my job. I'm willing to lose position. I'm willing to lose elected office. I'm willing to lose whatever it might be that God's kingdom might gain. And our Savior was willing to lose his own life that we might be saved. To give rather than hold on to power given the opportunity and even tempted. Listen, you could rule over everything. As Satan tempted Jesus, he said, no. I do not need that kind of power. I do not want it. And sometimes I think the best servants, whether they be public servants or servants in families, are those that reluctantly recognize that they have power. 
And they say, I need wisdom and humility that I may use it for God's glory. And so the story is framed for us. The story of Esther begins with this king. It's amateur, amateur day at the castle or at the palace. And he's taken the 10 second class on orchestra conducting. And he stands up there and says, all right, folks, get your instruments ready. And we're going to do the symphony. And he, you know, knocks his baton on the music stand a little more forcefully than necessary so that everybody hears that he's in charge. And he raises his hands. And since he's only learned music in 4-4 time, and this is a 6-8 symphony, he starts to direct. And within eight measures, everything has train wrecked. And he stops furious. What's wrong with this orchestra? And the answer is, he has no idea how to conduct it. I hope and pray that in our lives we have that humility to say, I have no idea how it would be that I could make wise decisions in my frame of influence. And I have no idea how it could be that everything could work out together for good. But I know that God holds it. And so whatever He gives me to do, I want to in every moment recognize that His methods may not be my methods. The cross, death, then resurrection. It doesn't make sense to kings but it makes sense to the one who rules over all. And so let's celebrate that our king is not someone who, like earthly kings, does not know what will happen or whose power is unpredictable. But our king, he rules over all. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you that you are king so we do not have to be. And as we come to your table, we pray that you would remind us of your Son, of his grace and mercy toward us, and that how your power was made perfect in weakness, and your power was demonstrated when the tomb was empty. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.